morning, congregation. Let us continue our worship by the reading of the Word of God, the hearing of it preached. Today's passage is going to be Genesis chapter 27, verse 10 to 23. You can find that in your Black Pew Bibles on page 27. And the Lord is honored when we stand for the reading of his word. Genesis chapter 27, verses 10 to 23. And the word reads, And you shall bring it to your father to eat, so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go, bring, him, bring them to me. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother and to, and his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved then rebecca took the best garments of esau her older son which were in the house and put them on jacob her younger son and the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck and she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. So he went in to his father and said, Father, and he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. But, he, but Isaac said to his son, How is it you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know if whether you are my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near, his father, his, went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. This is the word of the Lord. The uh, racing through this, this book of Genesis as we're doing now, uh, in preparation for what's going to be coming next year. We've been uh, talking about it. Uh, so we're going to be starting a whole new aspect of ministry in uh, January, uh, things leading up to it. But when we, when we pick up the pace from what we have been doing, it means we have to cover a much larger uh, section of the, of, of the book. And so what I've been doing is taking... Um, connected sections, so we only read a part of it, but, but the lesson today, the, the message today, is actually uh, starts in the chapter before 
starts in, in chapter uh, 26 at verse 34, and it goes through to chapter 28, verse 8. The, the, so that whole thing is one section. And I've often spoke about, spoken about the incredible uh, style of writing that Moses, who completed the five books of uh, what we call the, the law or the Torah, uh, completed those while wandering in the midst of the wilderness for those 40 years. He's got millions of people that he has to take care of with all of their belongings and all of their cattle and all of those things. And yet, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he is able to put together these five books from Genesis to Deuteronomy. But he doesn't just write out things. He has structured them beautifully. And we've talked about this as we have worked our way through the book. We can't do it every week, but I want to keep reminding you that this is a phenomenal piece of literature considering the time that he was writing it, the people to whom he was writing it, which are former slaves, and he himself having spent 40 years in the wilderness taking care of sheep and then putting it all together while they're wandering through that wilderness. He has given us a history of creation unsurpassed by the history of any other culture, not only in the past history, but even up to today. And today we witness again a structural uh, design that we've called a chiasm. You've seen it several times. And as I said, it begins with chapter 26, verse 34, and it will end in chapter 8, verse 8. And I want you to, to, to take a look at this and see this structure uh, that's there, all right? So notice this, the, the chiasm, how things go into the middle and then back out. Notice how the first line at the top matches the last line, all right? And then the B1 matches B2, C1, C2, D1, D2. They, uh, and so as Moses is writing this, he's not just giving us information, but he's actually structuring that information to drive home his points. Too often we read the scripture as if it's just a storybook, just a, a book of history without recognizing the detail of the inspiration of Scripture. The Scriptures come alive when we begin to grasp just how much thought went into the writing of these books. So the message might come through to us with clarity. Moses wanted the Israelites, as they were wandering through the wilderness, to recognize that God was sovereignly in control over everything including their slavery, including the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, and everything that eventually led up to them becoming a nation. But just as they needed to know, in the midst of their slavery in Egypt, and the subsequent 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, that was not accidental consequences of Mother Nature, so too, we need to grasp just how much thought God put into this 
so that we could recognize the world in which we live and the events of our history are equally under control of that. If you were in the Sunday school this morning, you heard Massimo say that several times through his lesson. God is in control of every moment, not only of the life of Jesus Christ, but of your life and of my life. So the scriptures are given to us that we might know without a shadow of doubt that the same God who created the universe, the same God who gave Abraham the covenant promise, the same God that led the people of Israel out of Egypt through the wilderness to become a nation, that is the same sovereign God who still rules the universe today. Sometimes that's hard to grasp when it seems that life has conspired against you. And that's why the patriarchs are presented to us with all of their flaws and all of the troubles that they went through. Even as this story becomes the story of tragic parenting of Isaac and Rebekah. In this lesson, yes, there are many theological lessons that we could learn from this. We can see the promise that God gave to Jacob. But I want us to take a look at what it means to be a parent on this grandparents' day. What does it mean to be a parent? To even fail as a parent? And so our theme from this passage states that if you want your children to passionately pursue the glory of God, be careful how you live. Be careful how you live before them. We have in this account five lessons concerning parenting that we must learn. And So one of the first things that we are going to learn as we look at this passage, as we read through this whole passage... What we need to understand is that discrimination undermines spiritual development. As a parent, as a Christian parent, we want our children to become godly children. We want them to grow up into, the, uh, as the scripture says, the nurture and the admonition of the Lord to become men and women of God. Those of us who are studying the, uh, the, the book by J.D. Greer, um, Gaining by Losing, we're practicing that by sending uh, Massimo and his family uh, away uh, this Sunday. But those of us who have been studying um, that book, we recognize that the, uh, the work that God is doing in our lives should cause us to say, God, whatever you want my child to become, Whatever you have designed that child for, let them become that. Don't let it be what I want them to become. Let it be what you want them to become. If that means sending them off as a missionary, then by your grace, do it. But discrimination is going to undermine that spiritual development. Isaac and Rebecca, in this story are terrible parents. Don't use them as role models for raising your family. They are really, really bad. 
Yet even as I say that, the fact is most parents make the same mistakes that they made. They had favorite children. It doesn't take much to see that Isaac's favorite was Esau. Look at verse 1. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau his older son. Now there's an emphasis there on the his. It's his older son. It's not their older son. It's his older son. Now that might seem logical given the purpose of the reason that he called him in. However, earlier in Genesis, we found that Esau had sold off his birthright. So he didn't deserve the blessing. The blessing should have gone to Jacob. But Esau had sold his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of stew. I mean, can you imagine giving away your inheritance for a can of Campbell's soup? Isaac should have then called Jacob in for the blessing, but he ignored the past, and he went for his favorite son. Meanwhile, Rebekah also had a favorite. Verse 6 says, Rebekah said to her son, Jacob. Do you see that? His son, Esau, her son, Jacob. These are twins. They were born from the same two parents, Isaac and Rebekah. They have equal genetics from birth in spite of their very radical differences in personality and in their appearance. And we discover back in Genesis 25 why they have favorites. Isaac loved Esau. Because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Parents, your children are no fools. They can tell when you have a favorite child. And while it's important to understand the differences in each of our children and to recognize that we can't treat them all exactly the same, yet it's crucial to know that God has given them their specific shape. The Bible says that God formed them in the womb. He created them the way that He wanted them to be. And when we play favorites, because one child maybe is more like you, or does things that you like better, or their personality is more like your personality, or for whatever reason that you have chosen to show favoritism, In a sense, you're saying that God made a mistake with the other child or the other children. There's wonderful news, though, in the gospel. You see, God doesn't love any of his children any more than others. He doesn't love the Jews more than he loves the Gentiles. He doesn't love the child who lived for him from the time it was almost from infancy up like Timothy, any more than he loved the thief on the cross. 
He lavishes his love, the Apostle John says in 1 John. He lavishes his love on everyone who is his child. Which leads to our second lesson. We need to learn from Isaac and Rebecca's poor parenting. And that is, delight undermines spiritual development. Delight undermines spiritual development. You see, Isaac and Rebecca had favorites because they delighted in what those sons offered them. In other words, they had favorites because of what those children did for them, for Rebecca, for Isaac. Remember what we read earlier from chapter 25, that Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game? Well, that's what we see there in verses 3 and 4. Hunt game for me and prepare for me delicious food such as I love. Two emphases there. All right? Hunt game for whom? For me. All right? Prepare for me the delicious foods. Isaac wants Esau to do things for him, to make him feel good, that he might delight in what's going on. Parents, your children learn pretty early how to please you so they get rewards. When you play favorites, because they delight you, you're teaching them to become manipulators in life. But what happens when they cannot meet your expectations? What if Jacob is not a great hunter? But Esau is. Then Jacob is not going to match up to what his father wants a son to be. And therefore, he's not going to be his father's favorite. Or what happens if Esau is not as handsome as his Brother, we know Rebecca was stunning in her looks. And so Jacob says, you know, I'm a smooth guy. Right? He doesn't match up to what his mother wants him to, Esau to look like. Thus can't match Jacob. So what happens? then the kids stop trying to please their parents. And they go off and they do their own thing. And we see that in verse 46. It says, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. Who are those Hittite women? Well, they were the ones that Esau married. Esau just kind of ignored things and and went off and did his own thing. He can't please mom anyhow, so might as well go off and marry my own woman. But the great news of the gospel is that we are not required to do anything to make God love us. Nothing we can do can make God love us more or make him love us less if we're his children. He set his love on us before the foundations of the world were ever set in place. There's nothing that you or I can do to deserve that love. You cannot buy God's love by giving a million dollars to the church. Wouldn't mind if you did, but... You're not buying God's love if you do that. 
You can't enter his love by attending church every Sunday. You'll never impress God by anything that you ever do, since God could do it a whole lot better than you or me. The communion meal is a constant reminder for us that we can do nothing to gain even the smallest amount of God's love. It is only through faith in the precious sacrifice of Jesus Christ, his giving of himself on our behalf, that we can ever stand as children of God in the presence of God before his throne of grace. But there is a third lesson that needs to be learned from the failure of these two parents. And that is that deception undermines spiritual development. Deception, manipulation, is always going to undermine the development of the spiritual life in your children. Both Jacob and Esau, both of them, were abject failures. Neither of those sons were good sons. One became filled with hatred and is willing to kill his brother. The other one becomes becomes a manipulator and a deceiver through his whole life. What a contrast this is to Abraham and to Isaac. Abraham taught Isaac even through his wrong experiences, what it meant to seek God's forgiveness, to turn to God and have faith in God. But somewhere along the line, Isaac and Rebekah failed to train up their children in the spiritual ways that would cause them to understand and to know the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac. So both of them, Isaac and Rebekah, without thinking about it, taught their sons to be deceptive. It's easy to see that in the case of Rebekah. We, we read that this morning. You got to, to hear the message uh, about her seeking to deceive her husband through Jacob. We see it in verse 8. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. She went on to tell him what to do and and, and how to deceive his father. But Jacob could have said no, couldn't he? Why didn't he? Because Jacob is a mama's boy. He has let her run his life, telling him how to live. And as a result of that, he has not had a God focus, he's had a mama focus. Parents, don't make that mistake that Rebecca makes. Don't become your children's God. She so micromanaged his life that Jacob could only do what mama said to do. She turned herself into his God. We are called to train up our children so that they become mature adults. When we baby them, when we make excuses for them, we're undermining their spiritual and their emotional development. 
And when we think that we might lose them, we turn to deception and manipulation to hang on to them. And I've seen this happen far too often. A parent lays a guilt trip on either a son or on a daughter so that they can control how they live and remain the center focus of their lives to keep them close. Isaac, however, wasn't any better in this situation. He plays the I'm dying card. We don't know how bad a shape he was really in at this point of his life. But we know that he lived at least another 20 to 30 years after this. But he wants his favorite son to get the blessing, even though Esau doesn't deserve it. And so he makes it that he's on his deathbed. And so we got to do it now, because who knows what's going to happen in the future. We read that in verse 4. In verse 4 it says, Bring it to me, that is, bring me this, this meal, bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. I'm so glad that God is not a deceiver. The Lord God has given us clear instructions in His Word in the Bible. They are clear. They are not deceptions. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 1, That on the day of judgment, when each person stands before God on that day, they will be without excuse because God has made clear to them who he is and how they should live. We will have no excuse for why we didn't turn to him for salvation. God has made it clear. Paul says that God has made his character and nature clear to every serial human being so that everyone who lives on the planet Earth can know who God is if they will seek Him. But Satan, on the other hand, Satan is the deceiver. Satan is the one who wants us to deceive one another. God speaks the truth. And that's why Jesus could claim, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Thank you, Father, for bringing, being up front with us so that we might know the truth and that truth can set us free. There's a fourth lesson, though, that we learned from Isaac and Rebecca. It shows up in their focus on their sons rather than their focus on each other. Now, what do I mean by that? There is a disengagement that undermines spiritual development that happens in this uh, relationship. Disengagement undermines spiritual development. And that's what we see here. They are not fulfilling what God said a marriage should be like. Earlier in Genesis, we read that a man should leave his father and mother cleave to his wife, and the two should become one. But when sin entered in the world, that leave-cleave-weave principle disappears. And what do we have at the very beginning? As soon as sin enters in, Adam goes his way, Eve goes her way. Adam tries to raise himself at the expense of Eve, Eve at the expense of the serpent, and everybody going for themselves. 
rather than being one, united. And what's the result of that? Their son Cain ends up killing their other son, Abel. And now you see the parallel here. Because what do we have? Esau, in this story, if we continue to read down, plans to kill his brother Jacob. It's a story that goes on through history. When we don't set our priorities in the way that God wants those priorities, we end up with dysfunctionality in the home. The parents' failure to place their relationship as husband and wife as the primary relationship, greater than the relationship of parent to child, that failure to do that leads to destruction in this home. It leads to jealousy and envy on the side of Esau, and even to hostility to the point of wanting to kill his brother. When we as parents invest our love in our favorites, instead of investing in our spouses, we create a breeding ground for jealousy in the family. Somewhere along the line, Isaac and Rebekah had drifted apart. They hadn't started apart. Back in chapter 24, the text states that Isaac brought her, Rebekah, into his tent of Sarah's mother, and he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. He loved her. But now, they fail even to have basic communication. How much trouble would have been avoided if Isaac had spoken to Rebecca and said, you know, I think it's time for me to give the blessing to, you know, our eldest son, to the firstborn. If, if he had communicated that to her, instead of going behind her back, she could have said to him, but don't you remember the promise that God gave to me? That the younger or the older will serve the younger. They could have worked it out. And what if Rebecca had talked with Isaac and reminded him of that when she overheard him talking to Esau, if she had gone in and said, darling, honey, you know, I I think we need to talk about this. Rather than playing the favorites card. But she didn't. And he didn't. And we see the consequences, 20 years of separation of the family. Rebecca never gets to see her son Jacob again. My friends, that's what happens not only in our homes, but it happens in our spiritual lives. Jesus Christ is our husband. The church is the wife of Christ. He should be the delight of our hearts. We ought to listen to Him speak to us through His Word and by the power and life of the Holy Spirit in us. We should commune with Him in prayer, often, about everything. It was the failure of the church of Laodicea to to be passionate for Christ that made Him say about them that they were lukewarm and He was going to spit them out of His mouth. How is your relationship with Christ. Your relationship with God. Is it rich? 
Or have you let it become lukewarm? Which brings out the final lesson. Disobedience undermines spiritual development. Both Isaac and Rebekah, because they failed to strengthen their spiritual lives, because they failed to listen to God's word and his promise, they failed to heed God's covenant that he had given to Abraham and then passed on to Isaac. As a result of that, we end up with two very messed up sons. I can't guarantee that if you live a godly life, that your children will not be messed up. I can't guarantee that. The scripture doesn't guarantee that. But I can guarantee, apart from the total grace of God, that a failure to be a godly parent will create situations similar to what we see here with Jacob and Esau. Isaac and Rebekah had both been trained up to fear Yahweh, to worship him, to seek his face. He is, the scripture says, the God of Abraham and the God of Bethuel was Rebekah's father. He was the God of both of these men. They had both been trained in the scriptures as they had them then, in the the truth about God and his covenants. And earlier in their married life, Isaac had been a man of prayer. When Rebekah didn't have a child, he went to his knees and he prayed and he beseeched God. And and when Rebekah was having trouble in her pregnancy, she called out to God and asked him what was going on. And God gave her the answer. In chapter 25, the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. But somewhere along the line, they stopped listening to God. They started making their life about themselves. They drifted apart from each other and they dis, uh, drifted apart from the God that they were to worship. And as a result, their faith had grown weak. Isaac was more concerned with getting his own way and getting what he wanted than what was right. Esau violated the covenant. He was living in sin and rebellion, having married under women who were under the curse of God. <clears throat> Rebecca thought that she had to use deceit and lying to get God's promise. Their loss of spiritual focus led to a dysfunctional family. And it's only God's mercy and his great faithfulness to his covenant promise to Abraham and Isaac that will eventually overcome these parental failures. And so, as we look at this, there are two great truths that tie all of these things together. Number one, we are all failures. We're all like Isaac and Rebekah. 
None of us are the perfect parents. We've all made mistakes. But the second truth, God is faithful to His promise. God, in His grace and mercy, can overcome even our worst failings so that He might be glorified and good might come. That's what the communion meal is all about. The gathering together of the people of God, each one of us knowing that apart from Jesus Christ, we stand condemned before God as failures. But knowing that by faith in Jesus Christ, we can have eternal life. And so I ask you, as we prepare ourselves for the communion meal, Are you pursuing God's glory in such a way that those that are closest to you, perhaps your children, your grandchildren, or others around you, might desire to know your God as they see you living out that life of Christ? And are you willing to confess your failures, to acknowledge them, and to ask God to forgive you and to change your heart so that you might become more like him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I don't know about the rest of the parents out there, but I can certainly see myself in Isaac and Rebecca and know that apart from your grace, my children's lives should have been totally messed up. I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your mercy. And I thank you for the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ so that our failures can be used by you to form our shape, life experiences that eventually, by faith, can be turned to that which is good as it becomes in Jacob's life later on. In our hearts then, Lord, do that great work even as we come before you, to acknowledge that it is all because of Jesus that we're alive, that his name is the name that should be lifted up. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.